0: All right. Hello, everybody. Welcome to our guest segment. We're super excited to have him with us for the first time. His name is Dr. Michael Heiser. And and wow, I'm, I'm reading his biography here, a Ph.D. in Hebrew, Bible and Semitic languages from the University of Wisconsin in Madison. He also has a master's in the, in the same field at Wisconsin. He has an M.A. also in ancient history from the University of Pennsylvania. And uh, so many great, interesting books here on Amazon. And tonight we're going to be talking about a companion to the book of Enoch. Dr. Michael Heiser, good to have you with us, sir. Yeah, thank you for having me. Uh, I I know that, um, are you here in Florida? I think I was reading that you actually live here in Florida.
1: Yeah, we moved in January. We moved from the state of Washington, so 3,500 miles.
0: Okay, so I am am in Palm Coast, which is uh, northeast Florida. And I think it said you were in Jacksonville. Is that right? Right, right. Wow. Yep. So so we're uh, I pretend to know where that is. <laughs> well, pump, I don't know where anything is. From. Yeah, so we are a little bit south of St Augustine on I95. Oh, okay. I, so just a couple okay, of exits I have a past who lives there. Yeah, just a couple of exits past uh, St Augustine coming south. Now you and I have one other thing in common. If I, if I remember correctly, I've heard you many times on Coast to Coast AM, and I'm also a regular yeah. recurring guest on Coast to Coast AM. I'll be back on there uh, on the 15th uh, for a couple of hours. I have to tell you, um, we have a regular guest on also named L.A. Marzulli. I don't know if you know L.A. Mm-hmm. Marzulli. Yeah, but, I met him a few times. Yeah, yeah, so he's brought up the Book of Enoch, but I'll be honest with you, I've never actually read the book of Enoch so I you know went through your book this week but then I started listening I found on YouTube where somebody had like the book of Enoch on audio where you could just listen to it so I turned it on and I started listening to it and It just gave me chills. I was thinking to myself, man, this is incredible demons and angels and the end times. And I'm thinking to myself, this is the greatest book I've never heard of and never read. Uh, There's a there's a (laughs) lot there's a lot in here, isn't there?
1: Yeah, there's and it's it's actually the it's the most well known of books like it. I mean, there are so many books that are sort of like Enoch that scholars throw around the term Enochian literature when it comes to what we call the Second Temple period, which is more commonly known as the Intertestamental period, basically 500 BC through the first century AD. There's a lot of stuff like it.
0: Yeah. Now, now the book itself, just so that we clarify this kind of the 800 pound gorilla in the room is whenever we talk about this book, when, when L.A. is here or anybody else in this book comes up, I even noticed on your videos and your presentations online that we have to say that this is not officially part of the Bible. In other words, when they decided uh, to, to, to which books are officially the 66 books that are in the Bible, the so-called canon of Scripture, this book was not officially included, but there might be a good reason why. Can you tell us about that?
1: Yeah, e- Enoch was never considered canonical uh, by the early church and you know, in- mass. It had its defenders for, for at least for a little while, for a century or so. Uh, Irenaeus, Tertullian, you know, some major church fathers uh, really thought that it should be included. Um, it was never accepted as canonical by uh, the Jewish community either, except for the, the sect, whoever they were, probably the Essenes at Qumran. They, they do cite it uh, like scripture, you know, with formulaic expressions. But the rest of Judaism never did. And the reason was simple. It, it wasn't witnessed in Hebrew. So, for the Jewish community, if you couldn't find manuscript evidence for a book to have existed in Hebrew, then it, it just by default it it couldn't have been you know genuine going back to the prophetic period and so on and so forth. So, the Jewish community never you know again with one exception accepted it, and for that reason, the early church you know was was disinclined for the most part as well because the early church is sort of depending on. The Jewish community, you know, recognizing the books that they recognized, you know, as canonical for the first testament, but you know, in the early church, it had a few uh, a few defenders, but that more or less, you know, died out. Uh, there's there's some wonderful quotes. I I think it's I think it's Tertullian. Uh, it's either him or Irenaeus. Basically, says toward the end of his life, well, I'm I'm basically the only one sitting out here still defending this thing, <laughs> but he you know he more or less says, you know, I'm I'm going to assume that the Holy Spirit has moved en masse, you know, collectively in the body of believers. And if this isn't the direction that the Holy Spirit is leading everyone, then I'm fine with that. So, you know, it it sort of went the way, you know, of a book that was important, but, you know, still on the periphery, you know, And, and my view is, look, a book does not have to be canonical to be important. Biblical writers quote from lots of different books. You know, everyone talks about Enoch because we have the, this witness in early church history of the, the discussion of its status. But the Old Testament writers quote from the Baal cycle. Well, are we going to talk about that being in the canon? You know, of course not. You know, they, they quote from Akkadian material, from Egyptian wisdom text. It's just the, the average person doesn't know that the Old Testament writers are doing this. But Enoch is so much more familiar because It has a more recent history, and, you know, within, you know, respected figures within the early church community, uh, it it had, you know, one or two defenders. So that's why it's just more well-known.
0: Yeah, I, I I find the book interesting and 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 so many things about it that I kind of learned for the first time in, in in taking a look at your book. For example, that this was uh was written it's believed to over 100 years before Christ and one of the reasons we know that is that Christ actually quoted from it. Tell us about that.
1: Yeah, there there are a number of, you know, s- scholars like to to make distinctions between quotations and allusions. So there's one or two, you know, fairly direct, uh, you know, quotations, Um, you know, Jesus and others will will allude to content in in the book. It's very evident that he, you know, knew of the book, New Testament writers knew of the book. You know, there there are things that they say that if you knew the book well, they would just ding bells, you know, in, in your head, you know, the, you know, the 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 bell of recognition, you know, would sort of go off in your head. So it it, it was a, a significant work. I mean, there's no doubt. I mean, Peter, you know, draws on it pretty directly. Jude, you know, draws on it very directly. Um, you know, the book of Revelation, I think, dips into it with, with some regularity as well. In the Gospels, you know, you do have these incidences where, you know, there's something said that that either – well, does that come from Enoch? But it, it certainly mimes what's you know something in Enoch, and it, oftentimes it's like demonic material and, and and things like this. So, you know, it's very obvious that the book meant something to the New Testament writers. It certainly meant something to the New Testament audience, otherwise the writers wouldn't use it because no one would know what they were talking about. Um, so it, it it had a it had an, uh, an important status, even though you know it wasn't recognized as anything sacred or canonical. Uh, but again, th- so what? You know, neither was Menander, and Paul quotes him. You know, it just it it, it really doesn't matter. You know, I, I understand why we have this, this discussion, the debate, but at the end of the day, I don't. You know, I just tell people, look, my superpower is apathy. Here, I don't really care. <laughs> yeah. you know, it, what what we should do is we should read the material not just Enoch but but a lot of this other stuff because if we did it would make us more intelligent readers of the new testament the thing that you know everybody you know agrees on if you want to read that you know, more accurately, more acutely, you want to have your senses tuned to what the writers are dipping into. But then you should read this other stuff, too.
0: Well, it's almost like the Lee Strobel example where if we use the analogy of a trial, a criminal trial, you have mm-hmm. direct evidence, then you have circumstantial evidence, which is that this all of this. Other evidence fits in. It's like there's a puzzle and there's a piece missing, and oh, this just fits right in uh, to this puzzle. We have all these direct pieces of evidence, and then we have this piece that is indirect, but look at how it just perfectly fits in. And I think that, you know, largely to me, makes me feel good about the book of Enoch because there's nothing in this book that you would say, Oh, wait a minute. Now they're talking about salvation through a different path, or they're talking about, you know, there being a fourth uh, person, uh, uh, in the Godhead. There's nothing in here. Uh, correct me if Mm -hmm. I'm wrong that you would feel would contradict scripture.
1: Well, there, there are things that, how can I put this? Um, There are certain things that, you know, I think we could assign to, well, there's no way that that's real or true. There's a couple of those. And then there are things that sort of reveal kind of a struggle, you know, within the Jewish community as to how to interpret something in the Old Testament. Because, you know, frankly, Enoch and a lot of this other stuff, what what they're doing is they're not sitting there contemplating their navels, you know, and thinking, well, we don't have anything to do today. Let's write a book, you know. No, they're they're actually they're looking at their sacred scriptures, the Hebrew Bible, and they're looking at data points in the Hebrew Bible, and they are trying to connect them. They're essentially doing theology, and they're doing interpretation, they're doing exegesis, just like we do today when we write commentaries or whatever. They are trying to come to grips with the content of of their sacred literature, and they're writing about it. So. In the, in the course of doing that you know you are going to have sort of differences I'll, I'll give you one example for instance in the Old Testament you know there there are well let me just preface it this way if you ask the average Christian hey why is the world such a mess you know why do we have all this depravity and this evil the the average Christian would say, oh it's the fall it's Genesis three it was happening in the garden you know don't don't you know that? If you ask the same question to a literate Israelite or a literate second temple period Jew, that is not the answer you would get. The answer you would get is, well, there's actually three reasons. There's this Genesis 3, the fall thing. That's where everything got, gets started. That's the first human and supernatural rebellion. And then you got this Genesis 6 thing, and then you got what happened at Babel. So there there are these three reasons why the world is a mess. Well, the Old Testament never... Explicitly connects them. in other words, it doesn't have the sons of God who fall in Genesis 6 working for the serpent. It doesn't have the the sons of God to whom the nations are allotted at Babel working with you know the Genesis 6 guys under the under the kingship of Satan It never has a structure to it but in Second Temple literature you get that uh, so that that that's a disconnection from the Old Testament but it, it's not really, You know, you wouldn't, you wouldn't look at that and say there's something wrong with it. You would look at it and say, okay, they're trying to figure out what the relationship between these three groups, these three rebellions are. And this is sort of where they came out. They're, they're discussing it. They're thinking about it. So you have things like that too. You know, it, it, it's very normal, just like it is for us to think about scripture and to try to noodle it, interpret it what does it mean? You know, what, what's going to happen here, especially you know, Enoch is very eschatological. It's, it's an apocalypse. So it's about the end of days. So you, so you have end of days speculation in it, just like we would if we were writing a book about prophecy. Well, here's how I think everything's going to connect together. That, that's that's what the writer of Enoch's doing too. So, so it's very normal. Uh, it doesn't necessarily, you know, align perfectly all the time, you know, with, with something else, but you can kind of tell what, what they're doing, what the enterprise is because, you know, Hey, we do the same thing too.
0: And I'm hearing more and more about the book of Enoch. This is something that, um, I mean, maybe it's just uh, a matter of me being aware of it in recent months and now hearing, you know, my antenna is up, but it seems like a lot more people are talking about this. I want to talk about some of the major themes in the book. Now I understand that the book is actually officially called the book of the watchers. Is that right? Who are the watchers? (laughs)
1: yeah Enoch itself is is kind of like the Bible in that. The Bible is made up of sixty six different books, again, in at least in the Protestant canon. so it's a it's a lot of books that collectively are thought of as a book, and that's that's how that's what Enoch is. Enoch is actually divisible in a number of regards. The first thirty six chapters are what is known as the Book of the Watchers. That's what the you know the reader's commentary that I produced. It's volume one, and it's those 36 chapters. I'm actually working on volume two uh, right now. It'll, it'll be a three-volume set, but there are a number of other books, you know, that make up the book of, of Enoch. So chapters 37 through 71 is something called the book of the parables. Why? Because those chapters, you know, those 30-some chapters are basically like two or three parables, And then after that, there's the book of the luminaries. It's, it's about astronomical observation and speculation. It's not astrology like, like we would think of where the, the stars determine your fate and your destiny, but it is astronomical or astrological in, in an earlier Jewish, you know, Jewish slash Christian sense. There is such a thing as Orthodox. Astrotheology, theology So part of Enoch is devoted to that. And then there's a section that has dreams. I mean, it, there are these different sections. And scholars you know, refer to them as books. Some of them are probably written at different times and then collected together under what we call First Enoch. There's actually two other Enochs, Second and Third Enoch, which are much later. This is the oldest one. This, The textual material that we have for what we popularly know as the Book of Enoch, which is First Enoch goes back to, you know, the 200s B.C. Uh, So it's a a couple centuries before the time of Jesus. But the first 36 chapters of that book are the Book of the Watchers. And it's a retelling of the Genesis 6 episode, the sons of God and the daughters of men. And also, you know, what happens as a result of that, you know, God judging the sons of God, which Enoch refers to as the Watchers. Uh, It's an Aramaic term that shows up four times in the Book of Daniel but it was very popular in the intertestamental period. And Enoch was very, very you know, likely written in in Aramaic originally, so that's why we get the term. So it, it's really that story, an expansion of the story, sort of both filling in details and then kind of rabbit trailing along certain trajectories that that uh, deal with the story. Once you get out of the 36th chapter, then it's, you know, there, there's some repetition for one. There's one, there's an allegory. There's, there's an extended allegory later on in the book called the animal apocalypse where the events of Genesis six are retold where the characters are animals. <laughs> you know. Okay. So, which is really interesting, you know, but, but it was, it was a way of retelling the story, you know, just in allegorical form. So again, it, it it, it communicates. It's actually kind of interesting, you know, who who becomes what and all that. You know, who the characters are. But that's the kind of thing it is. So it's dealing with, you know, put the two thoughts together. It's dealing with the corruption of humanity because of Genesis six and the apocalypse. So the writer of Enoch thought basically, you know, most of the crappy stuff that happens, you know, in the world, and that has happened, that is happening, most of the depravity that we see is due to this event, and the Messiah when he comes is going to deal with it. You know, at the end of days, you know the, the final judgment of these guys is going to come. You know, in the meantime, they're they're judged a little bit, but their descendants, the giant clans, who when you killed one, the disembodied spirit of one of the giants became known as what we call demons. These are the demons of the Gospels. In fact, they're called bastard spirits. They're called unclean spirits. Again, the Gospels pick up on some of this terminology, so there's a there's a direct connection with Jesus right there, referring to, to demons as unclean spirits. It's very Enochian of him to do that.
0: Now, the, so, the Nephilim, you know, you, you are, are those what you would refer to as a Nephilim? Because I've heard different um, definitions of who the Nephilim were. Uh, are the Nephilim, yeah. are they the um, disembodied spirits of the giants, or were they the giants? Yeah, it,
1: they were they were the giants. So here here's the here's the tricky part. Now there's two tricky parts. So if you think if you to again what what Christians typically think of as what demonology or what they think what they think they know about demonology is largely filtered to us through church tradition. Again, the the real world, the biblical world of demonology is we've got three problems. We have the we have the serpent figure who becomes known as Satan later on. He's the original rebel. The result of that is the loss of immortality to humans and separation from God, estrangement from God. So we have a death problem and we have a separation from God where we need to be redeemed. And then the second set is the sons of God, also known as the Watchers. They produce the Nephilim. The Nephilim are in turn produced, and the big question is how does this happen after the flood? Because you have the Nephilim before the flood, and then you have Numbers 13, 32, and 33 in the book of Numbers that says that the Anakim were in the land when Moses and Joshua, you know, when they went in to spy out the land, and they they freaked out and chickened out. because They said, yeah, we saw the Anakim there. There's no way we can win. And it says point blank that the Anakim come from the Nephilim. So you've got Anakim. They go by other names, Rephaim, Zamzumim, Amim, a, a bunch of these. So these are the the giants that are around in the days of Moses and Joshua. Those are either the Nephilim or, more properly, Nephilim descendants. Now in in Enoch, and there's there's hints of this actually in the Hebrew Bible that are really hard for modern readers to detect, but in Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 32, you actually have reference to Rephaim, which is one of the names of the giant clans, in, in hell, in Sheol, in the underworld. Their disembodied spirits are in the underworld. And in English translations, Rephaim is usually translated like something like the dead or shades or something like that. So you never, you can't really pick up on the pattern here. But the idea is that when one of the giant clans members was killed, their disembodied spirit is what becomes known later as a demon. It seeks re-embodiment. Now, the tricky part is in Enoch, the watchers are the ones who create these beings through their cohabitation. Those watchers are sentenced by God. They're punished by God to the abyss until the end of days. Okay. And that's why Peter and Jude refer to these angels that sinned being in chains of gloomy darkness. So just to stop you for one
0: second so that people can follow this. And if you're just tuning in folks, our guest tonight is Dr. Michael Heiser. What we're literally talking about here are angels, watchers, that came to earth and had sexual relations with women and then the offspring were the giants. Is that right?
1: Right, right. They somehow, again, and I don't know how it works. You know, nobody knows. How does the incarnation work? I don't know. How does the Trinity work? Beats me. You know, I mean, th- this, is, this is what the text has. The text has some transgression of heaven and earth where angelic beings, sons of God, you know, members of the heavenly host can assume flesh and we see this in other, you know, in other passages. Yahweh himself, the God of Israel, and two angels show up at Abraham's, you know, hut, so to speak, and they have a meal. They're embodied. The two men, the two quote-unquote men in that group, go to Sodom, where they, you know, in one scene they physically handle Lot. They pull him back into the house. You know, they're they look like men. They're they're physical. They're, they're tactile. I mean, they're embodied. So in, in some way they these beings, these supernatural beings, members of the heavenly host, can assume the physical form and, and do what flesh does. And the biblical story includes this episode where, and using the language of you know sexual intercourse, that's the most transparent reading of, of this, and it's how everybody in the ancient world took it, they produce Nephilim, they produce giants. Okay, And then in, the, in Enoch, this story again gets picked up and amplified in various ways. And one of the ways it's amplified is is you have this detail that, okay, the sons of the watchers, you know, these giants, when you killed one, their disembodied spirit becomes an, it's a bastard spirit, okay, because of, of the sexual relationship. It's an unclean spirit because it's a forbidden mixture. This is how Leviticus defines unclean. Okay, this is why they they get these names. But that spirit was also called a watcher, and that's that's the tricky part, that's the confusing part. So if you're reading the Enoch, you got watchers before the flood, you got watchers after the flood, you got watchers, some of them are intimately associated with the giants because they're the disembodied parts of the giants and you know, it it gets a little, you know, a, a little confusing in terms of the terminology. But you know, for our purposes, you know, we just need to recognize that in this worldview—the worldview of Jesus, the worldview of the New Testament writers—there were three rebellions: the serpent, sons of God stuff. And 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 the the thing that's really disastrous about that is not the Nephilim. The Nephilim get killed off in the biblical story by the time of David, which is not a coincidence. Who kills off the giants in in the biblical story? Moses, Joshua. And David, All three of them are messy, are types of the Messiah. They are prototypes. They are foreshadowings of the Messiah, all three of them. And again, that communicates theology. You know, it, it, you know, the, it, it was a messianic expectation that the Messiah would deal with the real fallout hmm. of the Genesis 6 episode, which was not the giants. The real fallout was human depravity, because in the Enoch story... The watchers who come down and cohabit with women do something else. They teach humans certain things basically to make their self destruction more efficient. They teach them about drugs. They teach them arts of warfare. They teach them, you know, violence. They teach them astrology. They teach them idolatry. They teach them arts of seduction. Basically, they teach a whole host of things that, again, allow humanity to become more and more depraved and self-destructive, the part, the Messiah needs. The New Testament, he does. He ascends, who comes? The Holy Spirit comes, and that is the way, in biblical theology, that depravity is is thwarted. It, it's combated. You know, it 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 blunts depravity to have the presence of the Holy Spirit in in believers, and that is all contingent on the Messiah doing His work so this is a coherent theological whole it's just that it sounds very strange to us because we are we are taught in our tradition to to be selectively supernatural let's just put it that way you know when we, you know, we can hear this and look at it and I get it I mean I ask the same questions well how in the world is this possible how in the world does this work I don't understand it it's just so it's so strange and it's so weird and yet it, it's affirmed in, in scripture and the answer is you know I don't know because I can't explain the incarnation either I can't explain what theologians call the hypostatic union that Jesus is 100% God and 100% man you know both natures completely I can't explain the Trinity I can't even explain the the, the idea of salvation that how in the world does does, does a, a, a guy dying on a cross, even if he is the God Man, how do, how does that like cosmically affect you know the cosmos and my sin that I do? I mean, how I does, guess that's how that why work? they
0: call it faith because we can't uh, right. figure all this exactly. out. Exactly. Now I hear your you dog in the background, and a I'm a I'm a dog lover too. And uh, a little secret behind the, A little secret behind the scenes here is my wife always is in charge of taking the dogs and hiding them off in the other side of the house so that they don't uh, bug me during the show. But I love that you have dogs. I love dog Can people. You want to take a one second? second and I'll, we'll oh, no, no worries. I'll I'll, re, uh, I'll <laughs> reintroduce worry. the show, and you can go do that. That's fine. Uh, if you're just tuning in, our guest is Doctor M- Doctor Michael Heiser. We're talking about his book, A Companion to the Book of Enoch. And if you want to find his Amazon page, just go to Amazon.com. Probably, type in his name, probably Michael probably. S. Heiser H E I S er and uh there's quite a few books that you'll want to look at here uh a couple of these i'm interested in a book on demons here another book on angels uh are you back with us dr heiser oh yeah all right yeah so i you know the the thing about angels that i got to tell you my angel story and then i've got to ask you a couple of questions about these nephilim so here's 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 my angel story uh my grandfather told this story uh for years and never changed it. It was a never, it never grew. It And it rang as the truth every time he told it. So this would have been in Chicago back in the day when my mother, who is 75 right now, she would have been only four mm-hmm. or five years old. So we're talking about like 70 years ago. In Chicago, in the mm-hmm. in small house that he lived in, you know, after he had children and was married and lived in this home. So about three o'clock in the morning, as he tells the story, he he was awakened and he is a very small house, only uh, two bedrooms. And he walked down the hallway and made a turn and saw two beings of light that must have been seven foot tall. And their their hand, their their arms were outstretched towards where the gas heater was. In the home. And uh mm-hmm. the minute he saw them, they disappeared. And he went over to the gas heater and the pilot light had gone out and the gas was pouring into the house. Oh wow. They would have all died. Of course, being that that was mm-hmm. my mother, I wouldn't have been born. So I mean, as you start mm-hmm. thinking about these kind of things. Um and mm-hmm. and that's his angel story. And he uh, told that story and never added to it or exaggerated it and that that was it. There, was, there wasn't there was anything else spectacular that happened other than that. Right. There were these two angels in the middle of the night and you know the the idea I, I love, I saw that you're teaching um, seminars on, on the supernatural. It is so easy isn't it for us to just to get away from the supernatural and think that it's all about what we can do and we have all this technology today and so forth but mm-hmm. it, as Christians we're almost afraid to pray for healings. We're afraid to pray about, you know, personal things that are going on. And and I mean, and just to think that there's this whole other realm, as you say in your book, the unseen realm. All of this is going on. We just don't see it. All of these things are happening all around us. It's an amazing uh, thought, yeah, isn't it,
1: it? It's it's it is, and it, and it's a shame. Again, I'm not, you know, I, I don't even like to use the you know labels because I have I have good friends, you know, who. Would identify as, you know, charismatic or Pentecostal. You know, I'm not, and I don't really, I don't really care about the labels. You know, it. it but, but we, those of us who don't identify with those you know, movements or denominations, there's an inclination when you're when you're outside those things. You know, to I actually heard a very famous preacher this week preaching on Psalm 91, and he brought up the devil. He said Presbyterians don't really use the word Satan.
0: <laughs> the Presbyterians <laughs> you know like? don't use it's the like, word yeah, Satan. Right, you know, kind of out of fashion, you're right? right? right?
1: You know, yeah, I know. And, and it's like, well, you're uh, thank you for being honest, you know, but it, it's like when you're on the outside, you, we're sort of trained to not think about these things and not embrace them because that's not us. That's them. That's a different part of the church. You know what I mean? We we, we have this fragmentation. We have this segmented uh, mentality, you know, really about the, the body of Christ, you know, the, the church. And if if you're if that's all you're exposed to and that's all you're really open to, yeah, you can understand the gospel, you can be a believer, you can, you know, do great great things for the kingdom of God, you know, all those things. But you will never be able to read scripture the way the biblical writers wanted you to read it. You will never be able to follow their thinking if your worldview is disaligned with theirs. And we have a lot of people in in church who, I use the term, selectively supernatural. We embrace the supernatural things that, to be blunt about it, we need, or else we wouldn't even be calling ourselves Christians. You know, the Trinity, the deity of Christ, you know, salvation. Okay, angels, demons, are Satan, uh, you know, I mean, this is the attitude that, that a lot of the church has. But the biblical view of the supernatural is so much wider than these characters. And not only is it wider, it's... There's a greater symbiosis between the unseen world and the human world that is intentional and deliberate. It basically starts in Genesis 1 and carries all the way through to the end of the book of Revelation by design. The the supernatural world, the the supernatural family of God, the sons of God that existed before humans were made according to Job 38, Okay, that, that's a family, and God has a family and partnerships. He, don't, he tries to, you know, God's goal is to mimic that, to do the same thing on Earth. You know, and He comes to Earth in Eden. Eden is the place where God dwells, where He dwells, His entourage is with Him. I mean, uh, all these ideas. You know, if you if you're open to again looking at it supernatural, there will be a lot of chapters, a lot of passages in the Bible that just sound so strange, but they have a very coherent logic to them, and they connect with other passages in ways that we can't see if we've sort of shut off the valve, the means by which the writers connect them. And and the only way you're going to see it, the richness of Scripture, the intelligence of Scripture, is to read the Scripture, read the Bible, the way, you know, from the perspective, the worldview of its ancient writers. This is why I am constantly harping. If I have a one-string banjo, it's this. I want the Israelite living in your head when you read the Old Testament. I want the first-century Jew living in your head when you read the New Testament. Every context that is not that is, is by definition out of context. It is a post-biblical context, whether it's Catholicism or Evangelicalism or Pentecostalism or, you know, the Church Fathers. The Church Fathers are, are centuries removed from the New Testament. You throw the Old Testament in there, and now you're over a millennium removed. These are post-biblical contexts by definition. And, and Christian traditions, the, the church, the wider body of Christ, you know, we all sort of grow up in one of these, one of these traditions, and that's how Scripture is filtered to us. It's not evil. It's not sinister. It just kind of is what it is. And then on top of that, we're moderns. We live in a modern world. We have science. We have technology. We are products of the Enlightenment. You know, we have, we have significant barriers to really understanding scripture, we have you know, a lot of believers have lots of data points about the Bible in their head, but they have no structure for them. They nothing to come on and see how the things interconnect. And 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 one of the big obstacles again is not realizing that you know I'm, I'm not I'm not reading my Bible like an ancient person would. I'm not thinking like an ancient person, but I'm thinking like a modern person. You know, and and really to get more out of it, and to be able to see more of the layering in it, and more of the intelligence to it, I, I need to set my modern mind aside, and I need to try to read it like the original writers and the readers would have been thinking. And when you're you know, when you do when you do that, and it, it takes it takes work. You know, it's the four letter word work. Okay. <laughs> You know, it takes work to do that, but we are fortunate. I mean, I spent 15 years working at a Bible software company before moving to Florida. There is so much data that we can avail ourselves to today. And the speed with which we can process it is is unthinkable, even 50 years ago, that that we have at our disposal the, the capacity and the ability, if we will just try, to be able to get the old worldview, the Old and New Testament worldview, the Israelite and the Jewish worldview into our heads and help us to just become more intelligent readers of the Bible. And that's why I did the commentary on Enoch. Enoch's just one book, but I picked it because it's familiar and incredibly that there is no commentary that exists on the book of Enoch other than scholars where you have to be able to read you know, Hebrew and Aramaic and Greek in the original languages. There's nothing that goes from the scholar to just the average person who might be interested in the book. And so that that's why
0: I did Yeah, this. that's Just why I, I love book. what you've done with this and I'm looking forward to the other two and so much good information that I you really touched Just my Trying to do something useful. Yeah, touched my heart today with all your your great information. I want to hit you though with kind of a final two for one question here. Sure. Uh what do you what are your thoughts about the Nephilim coming do they come back during the end times and also to throw in there what what do you make of You know what's going on right now with coronavirus and everything that's happening and and do we get any insights from the book of enoch does this add something surprising to our current understanding of the book of revelation the book of thessalonians do we get anything thing new is there any surprise in there about the Mm -hmm. antichrist or any you know part of the end time story that we all knew growing up that that changes and does it involve the nephilim
1: yeah, I don't, I'll take the second one first. I don't see any direct you know, correlation between, you know, scripture in terms of, you know, uh, end times material and the coronavirus. Um, you know, there, we've had multitudes of viruses and, and I'm, I'm, unfortunately, I think I'm going to be right here that we're going to have more, <laughs> you know, so, so to sort of pick this one out, you know, I don't see, I don't see any scripture correlation with that on the Nephilim. I, don't, I also don't see any evidence that the Nephilim were supposed to return. Now people will go to Matthew 24 and say, oh, as in the days of Noah, you know, this is when the Son of Man is going to return and, you know, marrying and giving in marriage. Well, if Matthew had wanted the, his readers to think of Genesis 6 when he was writing that, he would have quoted Genesis 6 in the Greek, in the Septuagint, because he does, it, he does this all the time. I mean, they're the writing in Greek. He would have quoted from it, and and none of the vocabulary for the marrying and giving and marriage in Matthew is the same as in Genesis 6. You know, and we also have other things in Matthew 24 about, you know, just the circumstances of life that uh, people unawares, you know, are going to be in trouble that, that are not in Genesis 6 at all. So I, I don't really see a single point of connection for that. Now, so physically that,
0: they don't come back, but their spirits are still no. here wreaking havoc. Right. The
1: connection I, I, I see is, I, I, I strongly suspect, I mean, I'm not going to say this is like unassailable, but I strongly suspect it, and I wrote about this in Reversing Hermon. It's a book I did with uh, uh, Tom Horn uh, before this Enoch book, but I strongly suspect that Revelation 9 is describing the release of the original offending watchers from Genesis 6. Uh, I, there, there's a lot in Revelation 9 that does correlate with Enochian material, and also you know the Septuagint about what happens to the original offenders. You know they're kept in chains in gloomy darkness until the time of the end. Well, I think Revelation is describing that. Now, now how that works out, you know, I don't know. Does is that does that mean that everything just gets more? This isn't even a word, but hellific <laughs> you know? yeah. toward the end, or do we actually see an increase of like, demonic activity? Again, I know because Revelation is a difficult book, you know, what what do we take symbolically, what do we take literally, like, who knows, you know, flip a coin on one, one paragraph to the next, you know, and that. But I, I really strongly suspect that that is what's being described in Revelation 9. So it's not Nephilim, but it's, you know... it. It's bad.
0: It's a whole lot worse. Yeah, and and if things couldn't get any worse than they are now, they certainly will. I mean, this is uh, just a small taste of it. Uh, I think at least it's good that we all had to stop and kind of look around and realize there's something bigger than us uh, that's happening. And that, I think, is is something that's been long overdue. Americans with our we generally haven't had any any major crises like this nationwide since maybe World War II, right?
1: that's what I think. I'm, I'm kind of a World War II buff, so that's the first thing I thought of. And, you know, what would be great is if we would realize, we would sort of be alerted to the fact that, okay, you know, these we're starting to detect some things that are wrong with our culture, that are wrong even within the, the church community. Just, you know, we're distracted. We're distracted by a whole bunch of things. And so when things are taken away, that is a good time to learn. I, I personally think what's going on now is sort of a warm-up. I think, I think God is, is allowing us time to awaken and realize that we need to rebuild community in, in, in terms of people and not big buildings and events, but we need to, to rebuild community. We need to get refocused on the Great Commission because when you know, the, the culture really does turn, I see, I see us already living in a post-Christian culture, and I don't think it's going to turn around and go 180 degrees the other way. So I think we've, we've, we've had some time bought for us here. And and when things do turn, our job is not going to change. Our job is still the Great Commission. It is still to, to love our neighbor as ourselves. You know, pre-evangelism and evangelism, it is still being willing to suffer for the gospel. And so we need to start thinking carefully now and putting things in place that will allow us to function as the body of Christ for each other and for the lost without things like you know, tax-exempt status and buildings and maybe even the Internet. You know, there are Christians living in other parts of the world, you know, Russia, China, you know, third world countries. They have been there and done that for decades. And And my sense is that those Christians who have learned how to function and they, they are flourishing, that's where the church is growing numerically. We look at the West and wonder, the church is dying, what's going on? Well, okay, it, it may be, but in the rest of the world, it's not. And I tend to think that those are the Christians who are basically going to help us decades, you know, maybe 10, 20, 30 years from now, function as we should. And, and I think we need to sort of realize that, awaken to it now. And then we, we have a chance here to, to start rethinking and rebuilding some of the way we do things because we're going to need it. We're definitely going to need
0: it. Very good advice, and uh, your your insights are incredible. Uh, for people who want to connect up with you, tell us. Uh, I mentioned a couple of times you've got a a very comprehensive page at Amazon. And by the way, folks, his last name is spelled H E I. S E R Dr. Michael Heiser, uh, that's at Amazon. But what else do you have? Do you have a website and any conferences yeah. coming up or anything like that? Any, any zoom events? <laughs> yeah. Right.
1: I, I don't, you know, I had, I had several conferences scheduled that are no longer. Yeah. Uh, so we'll see what happens. But I, my own page is D R as in Dr. M S H. Those are my initials. drmsh.com com. Uh, Basically, it's my nerve center. You can get to anything I, I'm connected to there, but I have a podcast, nakedbiblepodcast.com. com, Spelled just like it sounds. We're over 300 episodes and we do biblical stuff there. I have another podcast called Paranormal uh, We we talk about paranormal subjects using uh, peer reviewed research. Uh, that's, that's a lot smaller. We're 20 some episodes into that. It's sort of an occasional podcast, but Naked Bible is every week. I have a YouTube channel called Fringe Pop 321 where we try to produce and have a little fun doing it response videos to, you know, crazy fringy things, you know, that you'll find on the internet, like ancient alien stuff. So I, I have my, 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 fingers in lots of pies. You know, I've been, I've been in this for over 20 years, both biblical studies as a scholar and then what I would call postmodern apologetics. Um, so drmsh.com is where to to learn more about that stuff. And if you're interested in books, you know, Amazon is the place to go.
0: And welcome to Florida. Uh, sorry, we're closed now, but uh, well, I like it. <laughs> <laughs> glad you made it. The Moose out front should have told closed. you Florida is closed. <laughs> welcome to Wally World. Yeah. We're closed though. Dr. Michael Heiser, thank you so much <laughs> for being with us, sir. God bless. Yep. Thank you. And we hope you come back again soon. What, a, what an interesting uh, interview. I'll tell you what. Uh, the guy's got some, just some great insights. That I could just sit and listen to him. He's, he's one of those guys. He's just a great communicator and encouraging, too. You know, it's not, it's not all about, uh, you know, the end of the world and all these horrible things, but there's hope because uh, we are believers in Christ. Thank you so much for joining us. We're going to keep plugging forward these shows every Sunday night, no matter what's happening. Come heck or high water, we're going to be here for you. Remember, if it's Sunday night, It's Jim Paris Live. We'll talk to you next week. So long, everybody.